Osiris. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. If you can't get enough of my silky baritone, we've collected some recent instances of the tables getting turned on me, where I'm the one answering questions. Visit tinyurl.com slash lpspeaks for a collection of recent interviews with me on a variety of topics. And now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Ryan Wines, CEO and founder of Marmoset, a full-service global music agency. Marmoset represents an exclusive, highly curated roster of diverse and rare artists, bands, record labels, and vintage recordings for music licensing and music production. The only certified B Corp in its space, Marmoset is the first in the industry to give 10% of its profits to community partners and the only company to issue an annual transparency report, providing a clear line of sight through the entire organization. Ryan joined me to speak about his journey, Marmoset, and one of their newer endeavors, Track Club, a subscription music licensing app for creators of all sizes. Ryan's a thoughtful and interesting individual, and I hope you enjoy our talk. Thank you for making time. It's great to meet you. Likewise. So hopefully it goes without saying that I, I would love to do a deep dive into the business, into the businesses, it looks like, or the components of the business. But I would love to start where I usually do with my guests and learn a little bit about who you are, your background, what got you started on the path to being involved with music professionally, and kind of go from there. And I, there's some other things in, in your biography that are super intriguing that I'd love to unpack with you. But maybe we could start at the beginning. Tell me about Ryan and music. Yeah, well, if we if we go back to the beginning, more than anything, I'm just a big fan of music. And I don't know exactly like where that would be rooted other than the classic situation, you know, where parents are playing records and kids are absorbing those things. But if you pass, well, I guess in college, I was a college radio DJ at my alma mater, Southern Oregon University, Ashland, Oregon, which is this tiny little town just north of the California border known for the Shakespeare Festival. It runs all summer. It's the biggest Shakespeare Festival in the world, if you can believe it. And so I was a college radio DJ there, just a volunteer position, and really went deep and had a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. And that was probably my true jumping off point, at least the, the best one I can find. We moved forward from there. There was a point in life where I was trying to find my way. This career is still post-college. And my, my wife was in law school. And so didn't get to see her very much. She was always studying and, and on campus. And so I had some friends with a band, not, nothing fancy, just a garage band, local band here in Portland, Oregon. And they wanted me to, to manage them. They basically said, you're a business guy, marketing guy, big music fan. Come help us, you know, book shows, market us. We need a website, all those sorts of things. I said yes, and I loved it. And so very quickly, I was managing one band, uh, turned to two, turned to three. Eventually, I was managing I don't know, five or six different bands and artists in the Portland area. And we would tour up and down the West Coast, and we'd get east a little bit. Started releasing records. So I started a record label, which 
sometimes sounds really big and exciting. So I always like to unpack these things a little bit. You know, when you're doing indie music, like truly DIY and you're putting out records, it's something a little bit closer to brewing your own beer, you know, or <laughs> making your own coffee or making your own pasta. It's like when you say I started a record label, like in this case, it was DIY. It was, I didn't have a bunch of money. I wasn't funded. It was just helping my friends put out records, right? Yeah. And so I did that for a while. And then I just kind of kept exploring different avenues and alleys of the business, at least as I could get my, my hands into it. And so I started doing press and PR campaigns for artists whenever they had a new release. We're going to go on tour, started doing that. And that was back 15 years ago when you know, the music blogs were really where music discovery was happening. Yeah. It was pre-streaming music. So if, you know, if you remember the Stereo Gums and Gorilla versus Bear and you know, eventually got the Pitchfork. It's really where all the music discovery was happening outside of radio. And so I started doing PR and enjoyed that. So I was managing bands, doing some press campaigns. And then eventually, like the, I guess the internet, I sound old saying this, started to really take hold with music. And every artist and band wanted the website, and, you know, MySpace, eventually Facebook. And social media was a big way to engage. And so I have a background in business and marketing and, and did that for a day job, actually, at an ad agency here in Portland. And so I started figuring out how to leverage social media and the internet for artists to connect and grow their user or their, their fan base. And so back then, it was uh, you know these band, these band packages where you'd put the t-shirt with the record with, I don't know, whatever else sort of things that might be engaging to the audience might connect all the band. I was doing that on the on the leading edge before everyone was doing it, and it had a lot of success. And a bigger band based here in Portland, but the known more internationally, the Dandy Warhols, took note of what I was doing and reached out and said, "Hey, we see you, and we want you to come do that for us." And so they hired me to be not their manager; they had a regular day to day manager, but to work with their manager um, and help them launch a label. So we launched a label there called Beat the World Records. And it was basically uh, the Dandy Warhol's label, Post Capital, which was a little bit of an imprint label as well, distributed through Caroline. And it was them putting out the records and, and recordings of their friends, you know, people that they would tour with, friends that they admired. And so I was the label manager there for, I don't know, two or three years. And again, that was me poking around and exploring different avenues of the industry, trying to find my way. And one thing I saw that was really interesting at that point in time, I think this was a really important moment, was I was working, well, I'd worked previously at an ad agency. And when the Dandy Warhols wanted to hire me, I told them they could have me half-time. And then the agency still wanted to keep me half-time. So I was riding the fence in this really weird way. That you know the Dandy Warhols and their, their reputation or brand. It's very much perhaps psychedelic sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? And then on the other hand, I was working at a, an ad agency where, you know, it's, you're pitching clients and Fortune 500, Fortune 200 companies. And so it was really a high contrast between what I was doing. And it was kind of wild. But I will say what one thing I was able to see is I was able to see the amount of money that was being spent on advertising campaigns and on marketing for Fortune, again, 200 to 500 companies. And it's, and it's insane, right? The amount of money that goes into marketing and we're hit over the head with it every day you know, with advertising in all these new ways. I was able to figure out that of that, this giant multi-million, if not billion dollar industry, there's a little slice in there for music. And that little tiny slice that's in there for music in these ad campaigns, when I, when I pivoted and looked back at the work that I was doing with the independent artists, bands, and even with the Dandy Warhols, that little tiny slice on one side was actually a really big piece of the pie on the other side. And I was able to watch Dandies get um, some pretty big high profile licenses, especially in Europe. 
I believe there was a, a cell phone campaign that was a, know, a six or seven figure deal for them. And so that got my wheels turning. And I realized that, you know, one sync, one placement in a TV show, film or an ad for an independent artist, you could make more in that one sync than you could selling, I don't know, 500 records or playing 50 shows. And so it was a really interesting dynamic that I got really curious about. And that's about the point in time when I first started the earliest iteration of, of what is now Marmoset. I'd love to go back for a second and just probe a little deeper what you said about kind of dispelling or pulling back the curtain a little bit on what it means to start a DIY indie label. Because I don't want to make any assumptions for listeners. So when, a, when an artist or an independent person says, I started a record label, it implies certain things, right? Like I filed the paperwork with the state to get an LLC or whatever, or I went to the bank and I opened a bank account and now I can bill people and deposit checks somewhere. I can write checks. But what functionally, what does it mean to have an independent record label? And how does that contrast not just the ownership structure? I'm an individual or a small group of people. I have an independent record label versus I'm a corporation with shareholders or certain scale. But functionally, what's the difference between a small independent record label and what they have to do and what they can do and what what a normal music fan would think of as a record label? Yeah, it's a great question. There's, there's a couple key things that jump out to me. You know, when a typical music fan thinks of a, of a record label, they, they probably think of a big brand and they probably think of resources. And we're talking about majors or, or even big independent labels. That is the difference is they have a big brand and they have a lot of resources, an ability to really work distribution and marketing around a release. And on an independent DIY record label, what most artists are looking for is, is simply somebody to add to their team. That's what a small independent or DIY label is. It's just expanding your team. If you have a label working with you, it usually, it usually means you've got somebody with a shared interest in your success, some kind of investments. Sometimes it's not money. Sometimes it's just time. But you know, time is a very important investment. I think we could all agree. And so you have somebody willing to invest time and or money and or resources, networks, experience, um, and add that to your team as an artist, that can be a real big advantage and a real big push as you, you know, are ultimately aiming to increase the awareness and get your music to more ears and into more headphones and through more speakers. And so I think on some level, just adding someone to your team, whether it's a manager or a label or a publicist or, a, you know, depending on what, what piece you believe you need, that's what a DIY label can be. Now, there's all different variations and all different approaches. And honestly, and if we wanted to take a, a real tangent, we could talk about the current state of the record label model. Does it still work? How does it work? And I, I will tell you, like, I've got some answers for some of those things. I'm not sure it works. And I don't know exactly how it works moving forward. But I do know that digital distribution and streaming services and trying to cut through the noise are really at the center of where the future of record labels are going. But yeah, does that, does that unpack it well enough? Yeah, I think so. I think, and, and again, we don't, we don't have to tunnel on that, but it, I think it's an interesting point and it gets to the problem statement as you started to uncover it. Because basically when you're operating at that scale, it sounds like whether it's the owner of the label or 
whatever they have for a team, the interests of those people are much more closely aligned with the talent when you're operating at that scale. There's not some other way you're monetizing the relationship or the market share that it represents or what have you. So it really is another member of the team who has an aligned interest, who brings something to the table that you're not doing because you're writing and touring and recovering and (laughs) everything else. Yeah, I think in in an ideal world, you've got a few people who are all specialized in what they do. And most artists and musicians I know really want to specialize in the, in their craft, either the performance of the music or the creation of the music or some, some version or some caveat that's in there, maybe production or something. And so if they can really, if an artist can really focus on the music, whatever aspect they want to focus on that they enjoy and get somebody else to help with some of the business aspects or the marketing or PR aspects, anytime you can get that specialization on a team, it's always, always very helpful. To go back to where you were leaving off and sort of, how what you recognized straddling those two worlds, your day job and your other day job, your 20 hours, one place, 20 hours, another, and I'm sure it was probably more like 30 and 30, at least the sort of problem statement slash opportunity that you recognized to paraphrase you was there's a piece of the traditional sort of commercial advertising marketing budget universe that utilizes music essentially. And in the context of the music business, and especially at a certain level of the music business, it's significant money and therefore marmoset. But what's the therefore? What, how did you take that realization and apply it? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. So this is probably about 12 years ago was the inception day one of, of Marmoset, which is, is a tech-powered music licensing agency. Um, our music licensing company, but, but the tech piece gets bigger and more prominent every, every uh, day that goes by. And I'd say what, what was really interesting is 12 years ago, there was still a fair number of artists who wouldn't do sync because, you know, it didn't align with their values. You know, we remember it, it used to be called selling out. And so it took some time and it took some, I think, really important, more popular mainstream artists to have some placements before it would become a little more normalized or accepted by more artists and musicians. And today it's, it's hard to find an artist who is opposed to sync on some level. Was there a tipping point artist where you said, oh, the sea's changing? I'm sure there was. And it seems like there was a, perhaps like a Bob Dylan sync or, or something on that level back then that really got people talking. And initially, it would cause a lot of conflict and a lot of wrestling with values. But I think as you started to see it, happen more. It changed, it changed quite a bit. I, I remember early, like year one or year two of our existence, I used to supervise a really big campaign for JCPenney. We had Spoon in the campaign. We had Elbow in the campaign. And we had a few other like historically independent, I'm using air quotes here because they, they were all on, on pretty big indies. And I think probably on majors at some point, but independent artists on a pretty big campaign. And I think when those sorts of events started happening more and more is when the floodgates really started to open up. And I think as the, as the, as the hustle, as the work continued to get hard and for independent artists post access to distribution and, and streaming at some point, as soon as artists could start accessing CD baby and different DIY distribution options, this, the vast sea and ocean of music got really big, really fast. I think to compete in that, in that marketplace including touring, trying to sell records and try to get people's attention. Sync became a more and more obvious solution and option, both economically and from an awareness standpoint. Do you differentiate between sync for 
commercial applications and sync for, say, TV film? Is it, is it a meaningful distinction in your world? I think that's fair. It was much more meaningful 10 years ago. You know, there were certainly more artists that, that would approve of a sync in TV or film because the film or TV show felt more artistic in its value, whereas just putting your music with an ad or a brand didn't. But I think those lines have mostly blurred today. Certainly there are artists that would like to um, have approval or disapproval on an advertising sync, depending on what the brand is. Perhaps cigarettes or oil or big farm or something like that might, might be objectionable by a lot of artists. And I understand why it would be, of course. But I think by and large, most branding and advertising is, is pretty widely embraced in the music world pretty evenly with TV and film today. I want to draw a little bit of a different distinction and maybe clear up a misconception I have. Is Marmoset about brokering those deals or is it about production music or is it not an and or question? It's all of the above. We represent somewhere between four and 500 artists, independent artists and independent record labels and the artists that they have on their rosters. We represent them for sync licensing opportunities. In addition to representing their existing recorded music. So they make records for whatever artistic reason they want to make records. They then they allow us to represent them exclusively. So we're the only ones that represent that music. In addition to that, we also work with a smaller subset of, of those artists to do music production and to create music specifically for brands, ads, TV, and film. That piece of the universe you know, again, I don't want to be too presumptuous, but it, 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 it seems as though that opportunity has only grown with sort of the explosion in video games up and down, you know, whether it's AAA on down, the deluge of streaming content, just, just, the, just the, the sheer amount of video-based content these days that needs music. That's right. There's a big piece that it's kind of a, there, there's these hyper niches of contents that are being created for all of these very specific profiles of people. As they learn more and more about us by following us and watching our behaviors on, on the internet and beyond and on our phones and, and everything that gets kind of creepy. But as they understand us, they put us in these really specific and really narrow buckets or silos so they can serve content to those specific people all in, a, in an effort to ultimately sell us something usually. And many forget, even the TV and the film world, they're ultimately trying to sell us something too. It's not just the advertising as the proliferation of content continues. I mean, it's, we have more content being produced by far than ever before in the history of humankind. And I know lots of people like, like to use the word exponential. So I, I don't know that I'll use it, but it is growing at such a fast pace. More content, more films. And, and if you, you follow any of the Amazon Primes or Netflix, Disney Plus or Paramount, I mean, you see how much, how much original content and new content they're putting out all the time. It's, it's hard to keep up with. It's, it's really wild. And I would say... The good news for musicians and artists that are looking to participate in the sync world, that there's more opportunities for sync than ever before in the history of humankind as well. So um, it's a both end. Could you unpack for me a little bit about like the state of sync in terms of, um, you know, my, my perception for a long time was that it was very, very bifurcated between sort of, I don't want to say winners and losers, but maybe premium end of the market and otherwise in terms of like there might be a lot of budget for the end credit of a summer film and then a lot of scurrying around and grinding for say a commercial placement i'm wondering like how do you view the landscape and then what are you driving through like what what's the what how, how are you sort of addressing it are, are you perhaps asking about like areas that are more featured or maybe have bigger budgets 
Yeah, or more as when you say that there's there's more opportunity for sync than ever before. I get that. Is it that, for lack of a better way to say it, there's a middle class now? Yes, 100%. And Marmoset is built on that middle class, blue collar, hardworking, independent artists. So what that looks like is, truth be told, most of your more run-of-the-mill TV placements tend to be the lower fee sinks for artists. Perhaps at times higher profile, depending on the show, but oftentimes by and large, lower fees compared to advertising and branding. Film, it, it runs the gamut. I'd say big feature films, your, your, your batten hands of the world. Of course, they always have bigger budgets for sinks, but by and large, those are hard to come by. They're probably the most competitive. And when you get into the indie film or lower budget, middle budget film world, those budgets for a sink and a, a placement of a song are right down there, close or sometimes below where the TV budgets are. So, you know, it really depends where you look. There's sync and brand placements today, let's say for a, a big tech campaign or a big car campaign, perhaps that can still get well within the six, six figures for an independent artist, which is, and, and you can still find those opportunities. However, I will say the opportunities in the, let's say 1K to 20K range for all the wildly varying and divergent kinds of placements in media and content, those are really plentiful today. You know, when you look at a tech-powered scene company like Marmoset, and eventually we'll, we'll get to Track Club, our new brand, and spin out from Marmoset. But that's really our sweet spot. And that's probably one of the more obvious market differentiators to our clients is they kind of, if you want to take the kind of grocery shopping approach, there's the bottom shelf, cheap custom music, production music. You know it when you hear it. It's pretty crappy quality and you can get it for I don't know, a dollar or really low cost subscription. And then there's the high end, the artists that you might hear still on the radio or coming from a major or a major independent. And those are top shelf. Those are almost always going to be six figures. Every once in the blue moon, you might even get a seven figure sink still today. Although those are, those are quite rare. But when you're looking for the middle shelf, like we don't have the budget for the top shelf and we definitely don't want the, the subpar crappy quality, the bottom shelf. That's where Marmoset has a really unique market position uh, because we represent really high quality independent artists, some that you may have heard of and uh, really rare and hard to find vintage music as well. So that's, that's kind of the unique place. And for better or worse, I think that's been the, the perfect dovetailing of our arrival and positioning in the marketplace is most of the media that at least that we encounter is in that middle tier. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun to, to learn and grow and kind of hold on for the wild ride. Yeah. And it also seems as though if you are a, a working artist who maybe tours regionally or even nationally, you know, and is putting out records or what have you, like a $20,000 check once or twice a year is not trivial. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. There's all, it also seems that there's a lot of things, maybe more things than we can actually get into converging that make all of this possible, whether it's the access to high-quality production equipment to, to be a creator who can then fuel your marketplace. I'm also interested in, because you've used the, the, the qualifier a couple of times, what's important about the fact that Marmoset's technology-enabled? What is it about the application of technology in your business that is important? Uh, well, it's, it's access to the music. So from a, if you want to break it down from a, a UX, UI, kind of tech consumer standpoint, our clients, and there are, are thousands of clients that we serve every year, they have work to do. 
And so they are really simply just trying to, trying to get their work done. Like, like all of us, there's some joy to their work. There's some part of the work, uh, which in this case might be finding the right song, like perfect song for a project that, that can, can be meaningful. But at the end of the day, they've got work to do. And, and they probably most people like to get their work done so they can get home and get to the real things that bring joy and meaning to life, right? And so when people are trying to get work done, it's, it's our job as a curator and provider of music to help them do that in the best way and the most efficient and expedient way that they can. And so that's where technology comes in. Is I would say one thing that makes us really unique in the marketplace is most of our clients, most of the work we do from a licensing standpoint anyway, find the music on our app, on our platform, and then come to us and say, hey, I've got the song, I found it, let's negotiate terms. We certainly get projects from clients where they, they send us a brief and they ask us to send them music and we call that a search in, the, in our industry. So we certainly deliver a lot of searches. And, and that's, that's if you want to oversimplify the real hustle of music licensing today, it's, it's doing searches and delivering searches to clients and trying to find that perfect song. Um, that's a lot of the work that happens behind the scenes. But I, I would say most of our competitors probably do a lot more of the search and delivery than we do because of the technology-enabled piece. A lot of our clients find the music themselves and then come to us to negotiate terms. And so that's wild to say about 80% of our music licensing revenue comes from that situation, people finding the music on our app and then in negotiating terms. Reverse engineer that, about 20% of our sync licensing revenue comes from search delivery from us. And I'd say uh, almost everyone uh, else in that marketplace, competitors or otherwise, have the inverse. And they're probably hustling, you know, doing search search delivery of all for 80% of their sync revenue. So there's a little peek behind the curtain on, on how some of that stuff works. So is the is the technology component basically, for lack of a better way to say it, automating the workflow around a search? So now I can come in and conduct my own search because you give me the tools to say, think about analogy or adjective or whatever it is that I would put in a brief to you. I can now sort of do that myself. That's right. Yep. By doing it myself, do I pay less or, or to say it differently? If you do it for me, do I pay more or is that not a dynamic in your business? You know, it's not much of a, of a dynamic. You know, if it's a high profile ad campaign or a high profile film, there are oftentimes a music supervision fee or what might be called a search fee because the stakes are higher, right? But I'd say for 90% of your run of the mill sync opportunities, that is a service that we offer to, again, people just trying to get their work done. They might not want to, you know, there are some clients that don't want to go to our app and search for the song. They want us to search for it because they've got other things they're doing. And we tend to see that more in TV and film and trailer work. Those, those music supervisors are juggling so many shows and so many opportunities that they actually could use the help and they rely on strong relationships that know their shows and know their preferences to deliver that music. So it depends, but we'll, we'll do it for any clients that wants the extra help. And it's certainly something we're good at. So it's basically you could serve multiple personas. It's about what the, what support the client needs. Exactly. How does Marmoset interface with or become or sort of spin out track club what's the track club proposition as opposed to marmoset this is where it gets wild and this is where if we're going to really talk about the future of music licensing this is one that snuck up on a lot of us it snuck up on me i still believe it has snuck up and is largely off the radar of major publishers major labels people with giant catalogs of music that they could be and should be monetizing and i, I just worry that they are too big of a ship to to maneuver fast enough but what we're talking about is the creator economy and it's, it's something that I, me at age 46, it does at times hard for me to wrap my mind around. I don't watch a lot of YouTube. 
And so I'm not watching a lot of influencers, but I do know it's undeniable that it, it is the largest small business sector at the world economy is the creator economy, the creator marketplace. And so just think YouTubers, TikTokers, podcasters, Instagrammers, anybody with content that they are broadcasting out through any kind of medium. And I'd say YouTubers and podcasting are, are probably the two most prominent ones. It's, it's growing, you know, at a crazy, crazy, crazy pace. I believe the last report I saw, which, you know, is probably six or eight months old at this point, says there's more than 50 million creators making content and broadcasting it online. It's essentially anyone with a computer or a device or a phone can create a recording or a, or a video and, and release it. And the cool thing I'd say about 2022 is most folks at this point in time are aware that they need to use music legally. They legally get permission and license music, which is was not true 10 years ago, maybe not even true seven or eight years ago. And so as, as that economy has completely blown up, it's really like, how, how do we serve that economy? So again, to go back to the, the traditional marmoset business, we do traditional sync licensing. So a client has a project, has an ad campaign, has a show or a film, they'll come to us and say, here's my brief or here's my situation. Or here's the song I want. We negotiate terms. It's what I would call one-off deal. You have one invoice, you have one price, one payment. It might, might take several emails or a couple of phone calls. In some ways, you know, when you look at it, it's very old school, which is weird to say, right? And it takes time. It's, it's high friction. And it's a higher price point too, right? We just talked about the sweet spot for us is somewhere between $1,000 and $20,000 or $25,000. We do, we do sinks at those price ranges all day, like dozens of times a day. And occasionally you, you might get a big one that's in the six figures. Well, in the creator economy, they're creating a lot of content. How many podcasts do you release? I know the answer to this, but how many do you, do you release? We do, yeah, I mean, we do it weekly, year in, year out. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you do, you're doing it weekly. And, and some on Instagram or TikTok or, or YouTube, they might be doing it several times a week or daily. Clearly, if you're doing a high volume of content creation and release, you can't afford A, the budgets of traditional sync licensing, and B, you don't have the time or the energy or the bandwidth to do that kind of a process, multiple emails or phone calls, or even one-off click licensing on a website, you need a different solution. What that means is there's a demand for a whole different sort of approach to sync licensing. And I, I think the reason that the, the major labels and major publishers, and to be honest, other sync companies and agencies like us, the reason everyone is so slow to get there is because people's brains explode when you start doing the math and thinking about what people are willing to pay what a TikToker or an Instagram or a podcast is willing to pay, all of a sudden you, you, you do the math. Well, this doesn't make sense. Like that's just a race to the bottom. We're devaluing music. And I'll share, I, I did believe that four years ago when we were thinking about jumping in initially. But then you start to think about it and you think that, wow, well, they're going to get their music somewhere. And it's a different client, right? It's not an Apple or a Google or a Tesla. It's, it's someone totally different. And someone's going to meet their needs. And so we just had to look in the mirror and say, why not us? And what does that client need? And what does it look like? And so what that client needs is they need to be able to pay a lower cost, probably an annual or monthly subscription, where they can just access music and grab and go, run and young. You want to remove as much friction as possible and really empower those 15 million plus creators out there to go make their content. And so for us, that, that's the opportunity. That's the difference. The, Creator economy is a much different product, much different use case, a much different individual and, and business than the traditional music licensing universe. And so it's been a wild ride, very, very exciting to learn about. And it's also given us an opportunity to really lean harder into tech 
and come up with some really innovative solutions, which I'm happy to share more about, but I'll come up for air and give you a chance to, <laughs> to poke around. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple of questions about both sides of the marketplace. So I'm the, I'm the creator. I pay the subscription and then am I done or is it incremental cost every time I grab a piece of music? I, that's sort of question one. And then question two on the music creator side, I'm not asking you to, to divulge anything you're not comfortable divulging, but how do I get paid? I'm, I'm happy to dive into all of it. So the first question is, is if you pay a subscription, yeah, you pay, let's say a monthly or, or annual subscription and that's it. Like you are done. There are other revenue streams. So if you're a YouTuber and you create a video, you can monetize that video. So you can collect streaming royalties yourself. And there's also ways to monetize the music as well, but you're not paying anything else. You have the opportunity to earn more, more money, but not necessarily through the music, but perhaps if the song is good enough, somebody might say because of the music, right? And so that, yeah, it's a one-time, it's a one-time fee. You're not going to pay any other royalties or have anybody knocking on your door saying that you didn't pay for something you didn't have the rights. To get to the other piece, the interesting position that Marmoset is in is we're already supporting hundreds of independent, blue-collar, hardworking artists and musicians. And not everybody wins big, right? If you have a cool trumpet project, we'll go to that music every once in a while when somebody wants that avant-garde trumpet project. But most of the, of the time, it's more pop, it's more pop-centric music. So on that side, what does the economics look like for the artists? We have several artists, at least a dozen or two artists on our roster. And we're, you know, we're in the smaller boutique side of the industry that earns six figures annually. There's a few in there that make, that make six figures quarterly. And then, uh, you know, there's always some that will make a few hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars annually as well. I'd say what we like to look at is, you know, how are we serving our core artists that we work with? And so when we pull back the curtain and look at our top 50 artists and look at what they earn, I'd say if we were to, pull, if we were to crunch those numbers, I don't have them in front of me, but, but a, a really good guess I would say is our top 50 artists earn probably somewhere around 30K a year from Marmoset. Now you're going to have some at the top of that that are earning more and some at the bottom that are earning less, but for most independent artists, like that's a pretty good chunk of your economic pie. You know, you're not looking to us to be the be all end all, pay all of your bills and all of your mortgage, but you know, we can pay a pretty big chunk of it that way. So that's happening on the market. So we also, we offer publishing admin for our artists so we can collect publishing royalties as well. We do have a record label that, that we launched, I think about four or five years ago, where we really look to highlight historically underrepresented people and artists. So not a lot of music being put out, you know, with four white dudes playing guitars. Not there's anything wrong with that, right? But we're really well stocked up in the world. So we're putting out music almost exclusively of underrepresented people. And in those situations, the deals are even, even different where you're often doing some upfront advances or paying for some of the marketing promotion, manufacturing of, of records and tapes and things like that. But to bring it back. So we have our, core group of artists are earning money through the Marmoset business model and have been for the past 10 to 12 years. Now, as we add on this new product offering, this new brand and track club, we are now tapping into a marketplace that we weren't previously participating in. So it's new opportunity for uh, new income for those artists. What that looks like economically is charging subscriptions so that you can't give a percent of a single license. And I'd say our typical splits can range anywhere from 30 to 75%, depending on the deal. Sometimes we do advances on music that we represent. So if we're doing an advance, we might pay a smaller percentage of a sync fee. If we're working with a label where there's more, or there's more people in the transaction where the label wants to earn some money and earn back some of their investment and, and the artist wants to earn investment, we might split the, the percentage three ways. It depends, but I'd say on average, we're right around 50% um, for the average and all out, about a 50% cut between an artist and the company. 
Now, when we add in the uh, creator economy product, Treklum, it's a whole different economic system. And I will, I will admit to you here, live with you, that, <laughs> that, that we are learning as we go. So I'm not going to say we have it all figured out. We're trying to learn from what other people have done before us have done, and also just trying to t- take our best guess and be, be willing to iterate and learn and maybe even backtrack if we have to in the future. But the way we're doing it right now is we charge our the, the monthly or annual subscriptions. And that basically creates a, a pot of money. We take our expenses out of that. So what's left is we'll call it profit. And we're doing a 50% profit split with the artists on that. And the hard part is like based on what? Because how do you track all of the uses and all the music? I don't know that we have the technology to track all of it. And so you know we're, we're basing it on a combination of, I believe we're doing three things. One is downloads. Another is how much music do you have in the catalog? So your music divided by the total catalog. So how much representation do you have? And then also, I think we're also looking if we can track down some some bigger placements. Uh, we might do a bonus on top of that as well. That's a little peek behind the curtain and not sharpen my pencil on some of it. But that's generally speaking is true. I, fortunately, I don't have a, a card to read off of. No, no. And it makes a lot of sense. It's an emerging market. I'd imagine you have to manage some not channel conflict, but some education to your creator community about moving into this new channel and why it's additive and not cannibalizing. And even if there is some cannibalization, it might be worth it in the long run. And so I, I can, I can imagine it's all sort of a grand experiment. Yeah. We've had a lot of, a lot of conversations about that. I, I will say I expected a little more um, pushback on it or a little more scrutiny. And I did see that in the marketplace for those that went first. We're basically kind of a second wave of companies launching to provide music licensing in the creator space. I wish I was part of the first wave, but I didn't get my mind around it then. It was too, was too close off to it. But I think those that went first had a lot more scrutiny and a lot more criticism. Quite honestly, like I haven't heard any criticism yet. I'm sure it's out there, but it just hasn't made its way to me. I had a lot of artists really excited about it because if you think about it, you have an existing income that's already been created you know, let's just call it the baseline of sync income we're providing for an artist. And if we can go tap into a new marketplace, our hope is that you know, over the first, I don't know, one to three years, that we can increase the total revenue pie for an artist by somewhere between 10 to 20%. Uh, on the high end, it could push up to 30%, but we just don't know. These are all big guesstimates we're making. But I, but I think if you're an artist and you're making $30,000 a year from traditional sync income, and you know you can boost that by 10%, 20%, 30%, everybody I've talked to says, yes, sign me up because lots of other things like touring and selling records and playing shows is shrinking. So anywhere we can find new money to increase the income is a win-win. And so we're excited about it. I wish we could be increasing it by 50% or 100% or 200%. Certainly we're we're having those wild and crazy sessions on the whiteboards and, and asking those questions. But for now, we're looking at any increases in that positive. What's the importance to you or the significance for you personally and as a company to the B Corp certification? In a world where you're running a business and you have to prioritize where to spend your time and energy, how did you make that decision and why is it important to you? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. And perhaps I should have led with this because really the most important thing to me and my team and to the artists we work with, to most of the clients we work with and to the greater community the most important thing is to have an impact on, on the community, on the greater good. I, I think we all know it's a very uh, sometimes frayed and dark and kind of slimy history when we look at the music industry. It hasn't always been, well, it, it mostly has not been favorable to artists. And it's been very, I don't know, male-dominated and in some ways white male-dominated, at least in mainstream pop. We're really looking to ask the question, like, what can we bring that could improve 
the future of the broader music community. And we don't see ourselves necessarily as living in the music industry. We live at the intersection of media, all the content that's being created, music, and technology, which is a really interesting intersection to be. And so I think we, we look at how can we be positive disruptors at the intersection of music, media, and technology. So Marmoset's purpose, some companies have mission statements, we have a purpose, is to be community. And what does that look like? Our long-term vision, if we can really do well for the next 10 years, is to, is to basically, in, in simple terms, be the Patagonia of our industry. I think everybody understands what Patagonia has done and how, they, how they've transformed their industry. We really want to do that. And you know, to use our own words, it's to be the positive disruptors of our industry, leading the way in three areas. It's community impact. It's creating and curating the highest quality music and fighting for equity in, in everything that we do. So the B Corp certification is really important. We are the only B Corp certified company in our realm, in our, in our sphere, in our industry. I, I really hope, we, I don't say that much longer. I really hope that some others will join us. And being a B Corp, what does it mean? It, it means you're held to higher standards. So there is an audit and, and review of all of your internal practices where they basically look behind the curtain and, and take a microscope to things and see what you're up to and how you do things. And are you benefiting the community? Are you benefiting your staff, employees? Are you having sustainable practices? Do you practice transparency on some level? And so to reach that certification, you know, was not an easy one. I think we're on year four of, of our certification and are pending a renewal right now, which is exciting. We're going to see if we can beat our score, but it's a real value statement. If you look out into the marketplace of what consumers care about, especially, you know, your Gen Z, Gen Y, they really care about values. And they're really looking to spend dollars and spend money where they can have an impact when it comes to purpose and values. We're hanging our hat on that. We're all in. We give 10% of all of our profits. We invest that into community organizations that we align with. And so whether it's social justice or houselessness or access to education, those sorts of, of things, we have 10% of all of our profits. In 2020 and 2021, it was more than $100,000 each year that we invest into community orgs from our commitment of 10%. And we were the first company in our space to commit to giving 10% of profits away. Uh, was that our idea? Others have done that first, but we're the first in our space to do that. And we just have this, this commitment to transparency. And I believe, you know, we can, we can poke and prod all around values and B Corps and giving back and nonprofits. But if you really want to see what the impact is, you have to, you have to pull back the curtain and look at transparency. What, what is the makeup of the, of the staff? What is the makeup of the artists? Like how divert, like, you know, we're paying out all five, four or five, six million dollars to artists every year. What is the makeup of those artists? Are we just supporting the, the old narrative that's always, or are we starting to make some progress and share that wealth and share that, those earnings to a more diverse group? And the truth is we are. Our top performing artists are becoming more and more diverse, both from a gender lens and, and a, a background and race lens. Every single year that we move forward, you know, as is our staff, as is our client base. And the question is, why do these sorts of things even matter? Well, they matter to us because we have a vision and a, and a real desire for, for making a positive impact, you know, for having a brighter future for, for us, for our children, for our grandchildren. And we think this is a great way to go. And so not from a bang our own drum, we're holier than thou, you know, we're better than everybody. Not at all. It's, it's really from a desire to share what we've been up to and how we've, how we've managed to be so successful in the marketplace in hopes that others will join us. I would love to see a marketplace 10 years from now where, you know, everybody's giving back. 10% of profits investing in community orgs, but perhaps we could all pay less taxes if, if people were all giving 10% back to the community and championing equity in a way that we haven't seen in the past. 
Oh, that's, that's wonderful. I, 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 before I let you go, I would, I would love to ask one more question about that, that process. And that is, as you were undergoing the certification, I, either the first time or in your renewals, did you have to learn any hard truth or did you have to look at something where you thought you were doing the right thing or you, or you, you, you were very earnest about something? And then during the process, you learned like, oh man, we actually, we were missing the mark or, or we were blind to something or good enough wasn't enough. Was there, was there some learning that came out of you? Oh, yes. I mean, if there's not hard truths when you look in the mirror through these processes and through these principles, then something's wrong because there's always ways to improve and get better. And so, yes, look, looking in the mirror, scrutinizing ourselves, going through a certification process, or even more so going through our annual. Uh, so we, we've, for the second year in a row, we have released an annual transparency report. If anybody cares to see it, you can just Google Marmoset transparency report and you'll find that it's true for both both, both the entities, Marmoset and Track Club. And, and you'll see everything behind the curtain, warts and all. You'll see what kind of benefits we offer, what our average pay is for staff, what the makeup is of our uh, employee demographics, what the makeup is of our leadership team, what artists payouts and splits look like. It's all there. I know I already said that we like to say it's with all their warts and all because there's lots of things in there that we need to get better at. If you're looking for one thing in particular, the diversity from a representation standpoint of our leadership team took a step backward from the report two years ago to this year's report. And there's just some things, you know, that we can't be all controlling of. And if you over control some things, it gets, it gets gross. And sometimes what, what, what progress on, on something like equity looks like, it's sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's what we've encountered from a, a leadership standpoint, but it, it doesn't change our mission. It doesn't change our values. It doesn't change the fact that I want to see more equity in our, in our leadership team, in our company, and in the artists we work, in the clients we work with every year. I want to see that improve every year that goes by. And so on some level, again, why do we do this? Why do we care so much about community? Uh, why is our purpose be community? Because we really believe it, it serves as a magnet, a really strong magnet. And for those that also care about things like equity, things like diversity, things like giving back to community awards, things like advocating for artists and musicians in an industry that historically has not been kind to them. If you care about these things, this magnet is going to pull you in. You're going to say, yes, I want to work with Marmos either as an artist or as a client, or maybe as an employee. I want to work with that. I want to work with Track Club because this magnet is strong and I align with it. And on the flip side, you know, what happens when you flip the magnet over, if you don't align with those things and you're not into it, it has an equally strong push away. And if you're not down, you know, with the things I'm talking about, I guess that's fine. But that, that probably means we're not going to be a, a good partner for you. Life is long on one hand, right? And life is also short. And on that, when I look through the, the perspective of life is short, we want to do well with this opportunity we have with this company that's, that's 11 years old. I want to do well with with this spaceship called Marmoset and Track Club and this other one called Track Club. I don't think I'm going to launch and, and manage 10 companies in my life there. I don't, I don't think I'll have a serial entrepreneur on my title. But what I do want is I want to be able to look back at the end of it and say, we made a difference. We made an impact and it was worth it. I don't know. I hope that, hope that gets to it. It does. Ryan, thank you for your time. I really appreciate learning about you, learning about the company, learning about the mission. And I look forward to keeping an eye on you. Thank you. It really means a lot to be here and have this time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ryan Wines and the teams at Marmoset and Track Club. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, AB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend 
and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at Spotlight on Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Osiris.